This is Ben Guest, and welcome to Benbo's podcast. Today, have a second returning guest, second conversation with David Friedman. David Friedman, Friedman is a basketball historian, former basketball journalist, and today we start by discussing Charlie Rosen's book, The Chosen Game, which is about how Jews in New York City in the early 20th century created what we know as the modern game of basketball. So we start there, and then our conversation branches off into all directions. We talk about coaching, what is effective coaching. We talk about Kobe Bryant, set up a third episode with David, around three, where we debate whether or not Kobe Bryant was one of the all-time greats, and the how immigration has contributed so much to the greatness of the United States, while at the same time, immigrants themselves face prejudice and hatred. So we go into all of this in the episode. Enjoy. David, thanks for coming back. You are the first returning guest on the podcast. So thank you for, for uh, coming back for round two. No, happy to be here. Looking forward to it. So today, David and I messaged, emailed back and forth. And we decided let's do sort of a little mini book club. So we chose a book called The Chosen Game by Charlie Rosen. Charlie Rosen's a well-known sports writer and author. Uh, He's written a bunch of books and he's co-written a couple books with Phil Jackson. And this book was really about the Jewish basketball through a Jewish lens and how important, um, especially New York City, Jews in New York City were to the development of the modern game. Um, I don't know that it's Rosen's best book. And uh, for me, it got a little repetitive here and there, but it's certainly interesting how much, how so much of what we think of modern basketball was actually developed in the 10s and 20s, 1910s and 20s in New York City by primarily Jewish players and coaches. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a story a lot of people may not be familiar with. And the, the overarching story itself is interesting. The history is interesting. Like you mentioned, it, it's probably not Rosen's best book, and we can get into some of the reasons that that's the case. But first, to, to talk about the subject matter, I think one thing that might be of particular interest, of a more general interest, is if you look at tracing Nat Holman, one of the greatest play, a Jewish player, one of the greatest players of the early 20th century. Some people have said he was the greatest player to come out of New York City. That was written even as late as 1976, when Julius Irving and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had already come out of New York City. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that particular assessment or not, but it shows the high regard that Holman was held in as a player, and he was a better coach than even that he was as a player. The accomplishments that he had, City College of New York, he led them to the NIT and the NCAA title in the same season. Never happened before, never happened wow. since. Impossible to happen now the way that things are structured. He was a tremendous coach. And his influence, if you track it and follow it, he influenced Red Holtzman. Red Holtzman, of course, coached the New York Knicks to two championships in the 1970s. And one of Red Holtzman's bench players was Phil Jackson. And Red Holtzman was perhaps the number one influence from a coaching standpoint on Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson broke Red Orbach's record for winning most NBA championships by coaching the Bulls to six titles and then the Lakers to five. 
So you can trace a direct line from Matt Holman, early great player, early innovator, coming out of the, the Jewish predominance in basketball in the early 20th century, to Red Holtzman, also part of that kind of Jewish chain of events, then to Phil Jackson, not Jewish, but very much part of the modern game. And then you can trace directly from Nat Holman all the way to Phil Jackson. And everybody listening to this podcast has heard of Phil Jackson and his influence and might not realize how that traces back. And another Jewish connection that's in there, Red Holtzman and Red Orbach, two of the great coaches, also two Jewish coaches, they had a rivalry, that rivalry of Knicks versus Celtics. Now at that time, Orbach was transitioning from coaching into general managing and being um, an executive, but was still very much involved with the Celtics. Celtics-Knicks was a big rivalry in the 60s and then into the 70s. And of course, Orbach ended up with more championships than Holtzman. But Jackson, coming out of that Holman-Holtzman line, Jackson ended up surpassing Orbach in terms of total championships. So that's an interesting rivalry that kind of transcends generations, transcends eras. And it dates back to Matt Holman and to the influence that he had on many coaches and players who came after, who came after him. So that part of Rosen's book, and for anyone that doesn't know about Nat Holman, and then reads Rosen's book and says, I want to learn more about Nat Holman. I want to learn more about Red Holtzman. There's tremendous value in the book from that standpoint. So that would be probably the most positive thing I would say about the book. It's a great introduction. Anyone that has no idea that Jewish players were predominant, Jewish coaches were predominant, in maybe the first 30 or 40 years of the 20th century in terms of basketball. This book will open people's eyes to that and understand that. So I would call it an introduction to that. Some of the personal interviews that he did are interesting. Rosen, of course, was a Jewish player and coach You know, when he was active. So he had his own personal experiences that he described. And so there's interest and value in that. So I'll kind of pause there and that's the positives that I took from the book and anyone interested in the book or wondering what perspective it has, th those are the positives. And I'd kind of pause there and then I could talk about some other aspects of the book as well. For me, uh, Red Holzman is a fascinating character because I, I've coached the game and I, I find myself with a lot of affinity for the way that Phil Jackson coaches the game. And in this book, uh, I think in the Neil... Um, walk section, he gets picked up by the Knicks in the 70s, and he talks about meeting Holzman for the first time, and Holzman is just very casual, like, like he, you know, answers the door in a bathrobe at the hotel, and he's like, yeah, go see Dick Harder, he'll fill you in on the plays, I just do this, and I think that we have lionized coaching and coaches so much as these master strategists and master tacticians when for me a lot of good coaching is just getting out of the way and letting the players run the team letting the players make decisions letting the players figure shit out for for the most part um and i find that that's that that leads to success on the court and that leads to success in the life so i'm really fascinated by holzman i would agree with that i would put a little bit of a nuance or a twist on that where I would say, I agree with what you're saying. I think oftentimes in the games, um, the, the coaching, when you see like the coaches that are standing up and yelling and gesticulating 
and you feel like, and, and sometimes they're doing it in like they're up by 20 or down by 20. And Red Orbeck once made a comment of like how he couldn't stand it. Like, sit down, the game's over. You're just acting for the TV cameras. I think a lot of what coaches do on TV and during games, it's for show and it's meaningless. But I think the, the value of the coaching is in the practice sessions. In the practice sessions, no good coach is just kind of sitting back, having people figure things out. You train and you prepare for battle, whether, and this, I can speak from experience as a chess player and as a chess coach. You, you train and prepare for battle, but then when you get there, then you actually have to do the battle. The training, the preparing, all that is over. There, there is only so much the coach can do once the game starts. He can't stop the game and like say, no, you got to go here. You got to, I mean, I mean, you can call timeouts. You can do some things, but the timeout, it's 30 seconds. It's 90 seconds. It's reinforcement of what you practice. If what you practice wasn't good, the timeout is useless. All you have time to do in a timeout is say, remember when we ran to such and such a play, that's what we're doing now. And that's about it. You're not in this thing. I've written so many articles about this on TV. They're always talking about, oh, the halftime adjustment. What adjustment is the coach going to make at halftime? And it's such garbage because there's nothing you can do at halftime unless you've prepared it all season long in practice. Now, granted, you could go through the first half and game plan A didn't work. If you have a game plan B that you've practiced all season, you can say, hey, team, we're going to game plan B. You're not inventing game plan B at halftime and then implementing it. If you don't have a game plan B, you're out of luck. And so I would say Red Holtzman and then also Phil Jackson took to this. Their teams were well-disciplined. They were practicing, and particularly the emphasis on defense. Red Holtzman emphasized that that was his calling card. It's an underrated aspect of Phil Jackson's coaching. They're coaching in practice, but Phil Jackson was infamous during the games, like he's looking at his fingernails or whatever, or when they were down against Portland in game seven, down double digits going into the fourth quarter. And the, the famous timeout, I think Shaq has talked about it, where Phil Jackson said, well, I guess you guys have given up. You know, I'll see you guys next summer. And it was basically, it was all psychological warfare. There was no adjustment to be made. He's telling them, hey, we prepared for this moment. If that's all you guys have, if that's the effort you're going to give, then I'll see you next summer, you know, and we'll, you know, next training camp and we'll start over. And that was the motivation. That was what clicked in the players. We have to do all the stuff he taught us and showed us all season long. There's not an adjustment tactically. It's an adjustment mentality wise. And Red Holtzman was a coach in that regard as well when he was coaching the Knicks. They worked on things. He was a tactician. He, he kind of downplayed, but he was a better tactician than he likes to say. He was a very uh, uh, self-deprecating kind of person. But during the games, he was not standing up, yelling, screaming, doing all this stuff because they'd already been prepared. And so I agree with like 99% of what you said, but I would just say they're not like rolling the ball out and letting them run around and do anything in practice. Practice is structured. Practice is organized. And then in the games, that's where the players have to shine. And that's something, if you look at the great coaches, John Wooden, Phil Jackson, they, these are practice coaches. If you're a coach and you want to learn how to run a team, more so than going to a game and watching their teams play, you want to go to a practice and watch them run a practice. And that also would be true of someone I think we'll talk about from the book, Larry Brown. Larry Brown's practices, and he's a highly technical coach, but he's doing that in practice. He's preparing the players to succeed. And then during the game, 
you know, there's only so much you can do as a coach. I mean, you can't go out there and fix stuff if it's broken. Yeah, 100% agree with that, David. And, and that's, I always felt, you know, that's where I earned my money or earned my keep as a coach was in practice. And it, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm doing some writing right now, as you know, about the, the quote unquote professional team that I coached here in Namibia. And I'm writing about how once the game starts, like before the game starts, you have a little bit of nerves, of course. Once the game starts, the nerves kind of quiet. And this may sound counterintuitive, but speaks to exactly what you were saying. When the fourth quarter starts, I'm not nervous because except for the two timeouts I'm keeping, you know, for end of game adjustments, I've literally done everything I can do. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not a gambler, but it's like you're throwing the dice at craps and the dice that when the fourth quarter starts, the die have been thrown and there's yep. one or two things that I can do, just like you're saying of, I can call a timeout and remind them about something, or I can call a timeout and call a specific play that we've already practiced a million times in practice. But this idea of the coach who, genius coach who draws up a game-winning play on the fly, get the fuck out of here. That's never happened in life. Or if it has, you know, they just got lucky. And that is why um, when you see like a Greg Popovich or Bill Belichick and the interactions that they have with the media, because those are two coaches they kind of refuse to go along with the narrative. And so when the media asks them stupid questions, they give answers that reveal how stupid the questions are. And I've been at some press conferences. I was I covered a couple games in the 2007 NBA Finals, which was Popovich, you know, coaching against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Obviously, I've seen a lot of these press conferences on TV and also Belichick. Most of the coaches will just kind of play along with things. They don't want to ruffle the media. You know, they always say like, don't pick a fight with someone that purchases ink by the barrel or bandwidth or whatever. But but Popovich and Belichick, like they don't care about that. And so if you ask them a stupid question, they will give an answer that either directly or indirectly makes it obvious that the question was stupid. And a lot of the questions have to do with like the so-called adjustments being made by them or by the other team. And one of the things that always occurred to me, like if they made a brilliant adjustment, why would they explain what it is? Like, why would they give that away? Is one, like you're asking someone to give away a trade secret if it actually exists. But also it betrays the media that covers these games do not really understand at a conceptual level what is happening. And, I, and I've been a member of the media and I've tried to be someone who does understand what's happening, but I've been in conversations with these folks. I've been in the media room when they're asking questions. I've been at games and observed the games and interviewed people and saw what happened and then saw the coverage afterwards by others that had nothing to do with what took place. And so I, you know, I've kind of seen how the sausage is made, so to speak, if you, you know, take like the Upton, you know, the, Sin the Sinclair example where he's talking about like, once you know how the sausage is made, you're never going to want to eat sausage. Like when you understand how the media sausage is made at times, um, it's, it's quite uh, enlightening. And so, yes, yeah, so to get back to what you're talking about, Matt Holman to, um, to Red Holtzman to Phil Jackson, and then this idea of this coaching tree, and then also the idea of what is coaching really about. And then I would mention also with Larry Brown, it's often been said of Larry Brown, it seems like he almost likes practice more than the games. Practice is when he's really doing the preparation. Practice, he has more control over what is happening. I read an article about Larry Brown once that said, he essentially has a photographic memory for basketball. 
that when he's watching 10 players moving, he simultaneously knows where all 10 are. And if one person, like if they're supposed to plant their foot and cut this way, and they plant their foot the wrong way and cut the other way, in the practice, he blows the whistle and he stops. And he goes out to the player and he like moves the player. Like, no, you're supposed to stand here. Your foot's pointing this way, you cut that way. Like he sees all of it. And that, of course, is a tremendous asset as a teacher. You can't teach what you don't see. If you miss what's happening, then you can't correct it. And then that leads to the problems during the game. And I can give a football analogy to this. I met Tom Brown once, who was a safety for the Green Bay Packers. He also played Major League Baseball. He was a two-sport athlete, although not an exceptional Major League Baseball player. But it is an exceptional thing to play two sports at the professional level. And so it was interesting. This, this ties into Jewish basketball. Believe it or not, even though he's not Jewish and didn't play basketball, I was waiting to interview Dolph Shade at the National Sports Collectors Convention. And while I was waiting, I bumped into him, to Tom Brown. And I ended up having this conversation with him while I was waiting to interview the person I was there to interview. And one of the things that fascinated me about the Green Bay Packers of the 1960s that won so many championships, after Vince Lombardi left, they had mostly the same players. Granted, they're starting to get older. I can understand that. But they just had this incredible drop-off from two-time defending Super Bowl champions and then Lombardi leaves and the whole kind of train goes off the tracks. And so I asked him, I said, what, what was the difference? What was the difference from being coached by Lombardi versus you know, the coach that came in and succeeded him? And what Brown said, and this goes back to the Larry Brown photographic memory of every player, Brown said, Vince Lombardi knew what every player was supposed to do on every play. So when they were in practice, if they're doing pass protection and the right guard, you know, his, his footwork is wrong. Lombardi's blowing the whistle. No, 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 no. That's not how we do it. That's not how the Packers pass protect. When Lombardi left, the practices were different. He wasn't talking about the in-game coaching. The practices were different in subtle ways, but there was sloppiness that wasn't being detected or corrected. And then you have these practices over the course of a season, you're losing that edge. As a coach, you understand the difference between winning and losing, particularly when the talent level are similar, it's small. It's a small margin of whether you win or lose. Even if the outcome of the game was decided by a large margin at the end, the difference is small things that accumulate. And so these small things that the Packers were not doing in practice, that's Tom Brown's opinion. And I don't know if he's the biggest expert on the Packers or whatever. I don't proclaim that I am an expert on the Packers, but that's a player who was on the team who won championships. And he felt the way that Lombardi ran practices was a key to their success. And that all ties back into Nat Holman, Red Holtzman, Phil Jackson, Jewish basketball, Larry Brown. It's all connected in some ways. It's all knowledge. It's all information. It's all connected. And so someone that wanted to learn about football coaching would have been well advised to watch a Vince Lombardi practice, just like all of these coaches now flock. You know, if, if Belichick has a practice, it's open where lets people come in or Nick Saban, who worked together with Belichick uh, with the Cleveland Browns. That's why the coaches, they go to watch other coaches practices, not so much to watch the games. Or if you're watching a game, you're scouting players when you're watching a game. If you're scouting a coach, you want to watch the coaches' practices. And so um, that kind of you know, ties all that together or connects all of that, hopefully. 
Yeah, for sure. And for me, I always love, to your point, I always loved attending any practice for any sport because the way I kind of think about practice is you have about 90 minutes in terms of how much a person can concentrate and yep. take in knowledge and do skill development. And maybe it's two hours because you do some stretching to begin with and cool down, whatever. But let's say 90 minutes, really. And all it comes down to is how do you organize those 90 minutes? And, and to me, great coaches are able to just maximize every single second of practice. So I'll give you an example. Um, the mic and drill is a standard drill that players yep. learn where you you know, you just do left-hand, right-hand layups, a la George Mikan. And so one of, my, one of my former players is now a coach, and he asked me to come by practice and help him out a little bit. So he had the guys doing the Mikan drill, but it was, you know, one guy would do it and four guys would wait. And then same thing at the other basket. And I said, Jack, just have the four guys who are waiting, even without the ball, just have them go through the movements. Because right. now they're doing skill development rather than standing around. So to me, a, a, a not particularly good coach, you go to their practices and there's players are not maximizing the time. There, there's lots of downtime. And a great coach, it's just bang, 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 and everybody's always doing something. Yeah, and that keeps the player's attention. <laughs> it keeps them focused. You, you want to get in there and you've got the practices are organized to a T. Some of the coaches, it's almost like down to the minute. We're spending 15 minutes on this. 15 minutes on that. And then when we're in the 15 minutes on this particular discipline, we know exactly what we're doing. And you've got to replicate as much as possible in practice game conditions and game speed. The players that played for great coaches will always tell you the games were easy. You know, if you can survive a John Wooden practice, if you can survive a Pat Riley practice, some of these other coaches, the games are easy because the practices are preparing you and might even be more difficult because you're going against other players on your team that are also well-prepared and well-disciplined, whereas the teams you're playing might not be as well-prepared or disciplined. So in many ways, the game is easier because you're not going against someone that is as well-schooled or well-trained, well-disciplined. So yeah, the, the practices, it, it's an underrated thing, but for the media, that's not an angle that they often cover or look at. They're, they're looking at what happened. And then it's such a narrow focus. It's what happened in the game with the player that had the ball at the last second when right before the game ended. And there's so much that happened prior to that. I, I often hear casual fans saying, I only watched the last two minutes of the game, or I only watched the fourth quarter. That's all I need. Well, I mean, I guess if all you're interested in is the outcome, I guess you can do that. I mean, you could even just watch the highlights. You could skip the game and you can still find out what happened. What I've told people for years is I, I watched the whole game, of course. The first quarter is what is going to tell you what the story is going to be, what is going to decide the outcome of the game, barring, you know, an injury or an ejection, you know. That is going to show you what each team prepared, what the matchups are, and what happens in the first quarter is going to give you a lot of indication of how the game is going to progress and potentially who might win. Even if the team that wins is trailing at the end of the first quarter, you can still see, you know what, they have this matchup advantage. And over the course of four quarters, that's going to dictate the outcome of the game. You know, this guy got hot and hit three three-pointers and the other team's up by six right now because that guy got hot. That was an anomaly. 
that guy's not going to hit three three-pointers in the second. To th- He's not going to finish the game with 12 three-pointers. He's going to finish the game with three three-pointers like he had in the first quarter. But the matchup advantage that the other team has that they are going to be able to exploit, that's going to decide the outcome of the game. By the time you're watching the fourth quarter, you're thinking, oh, I already saw that. I know that's going to happen. And I don't, I rarely see the game written about or discussed that way, that the first quarter is giving you an indication of what's going to happen later. The first quarter is very important to understand what matchups are being exploited or could be exploited. And I rarely see that mentioned or discussed, but I think it's critical. Yeah, 100%. And to give another example, so I listen to a lot of basketball podcasts, popular podcasts, ESPN and Bill Simmons and so forth. And everybody has said consistently throughout the season, Giannis can't win the MVP this year. Why? Because he won it twice in a row. That should tell you everything you need to know about popular media analysis. Like literally they're saying, it doesn't matter if he's the MVP, he can't win it because he's already won it, which is dumb as, dumb as hell. Yeah, and, and that's how Michael Jordan ended up being, you know, was the best player through the vast majority of his career. And they had years he didn't win the MVP because they decided this is Barkley's year, it's Carl Malone's year. I think this is something, honestly, I think LeBron could have won more MVPs. I think Kobe should have won more MVPs. Shaq was the most dominant big man in the league for an extended period of time. He won one regular season MVP. He has three finals MVPs. He won one regular season MVP. And there was some point, I don't know exactly what year that this happened, but the MVP voting kind of went off the rails, in my opinion. If you look at the first 30 or 40 years of the MVP voting, I mean, you could quibble or disagree here or there, but for the most part, and I mean, there's one... Rick Barry arguably should have won the MVP in 1975. It was a player's vote. The players did not like him. And it's not so much that McAdoo was not a deserving winner. McAdoo was a deserving winner. I love Bob McAdoo. I interviewed him. I've interviewed Rick Barry as well. But the way you can tell that that vote wasn't right is Rick Barry finished fourth. <laughs> it should have been one, two. And, and you could have a conversation. I think you could have a good conversation which way it should have been one, two. When Barry was fourth, that's when you understood, yeah, there's some guys that just flat out players did not like Rick Barry. He was not popular. He didn't care about that. But and that's how the vote ended up becoming a media vote. A few years later, they turned it into being, it went from being a player vote to a media vote. And the media voting for a while, I think it pretty much made sense. But at some point, it might have been like in the, in the Michael Jordan era when they started deciding, well, Michael Jordan's won it too much. And then started going into the 2000s, a lot of the MVP votes of the past maybe 25 years or so I I disagree with and and it's not even just who won but like you know there was the year you know the Steve Nash MVPs people always talk about those because Kobe could have won or Shaq could have won but the thing that I always say is not even so much whether or not Nash should have won or should have won two of them one of those years Kobe was fourth just like the Rick Barry example and didn't receive any top five votes now, if you're watching a whole NBA season in 2005, 6, 7, 8, in that time frame, and you're supposedly an expert and you don't think Kobe's one of the top five players, you know, there's something that's wrong. And if you don't think he's a top five player, I'm not interested in who you thought was the top player because you just don't know. Like, once you didn't put him in the top five, I don't care if you had Nash, Nowitzki, LeBron, I don't care who you put as the winner. Like, your vote to me, like, it doesn't count. It's not valid because there's just something that's inherently wrong with that. And so 
Yeah, this idea, of course, Giannis could win it this year. I mean, you could say Jokic could win. I mean, there's other candidates. But the idea that we have to just discount Giannis because he won two in a row, yeah, of course, it doesn't make any sense. And I've written many articles about MVP voting in the past, you know, what's happened over the past couple decades. Because like I said, I think it's just gone off the rails in many ways, not just in terms of who's won, but then when you start looking at players that should have been significant candidates that did not even get a single vote. And you're puzzled in trying uh, you know, to understand how, how can that possibly happen? How can this guy not get a vote? How is he not in the top five? Yeah, that, that, that brings up a bunch of thoughts. Number one, I think we have our topic for the third podcast that we do, which is Kobe Bryant, because I, I, you, know, you and I have corresponded a bunch and, and we see the game in a similar fashion, I think. Uh, and you're just a fantastic writer as well. Like even your, I mean, your, your articles that you've posted are great, but even your emails, like you can cut glass on them. They're so just well-constructed. But Kobe Bryant is an area where we definitely disagree because I think he's one of, I think Kobe and Iverson are two of the most overrated players of all time. But let's save that. Well, the, that's okay. And, and that would be an, it would be an interesting conversation. I mean, with Iverson, I would just say briefly, and I, I've said this about Iverson before, and I saw Iverson play in person. I mean, Kobe as well. Iverson is the most amazing athlete I have ever seen in my life. He's not necessarily, he, or he's definitely not the greatest basketball player that I ever saw. But if you have to understand, when you see, if Allen Iverson, when he came on the court, if he's wearing his warmups and you can't see his hair, so you don't recognize his distinctive, you know, the way his appearance, you would think he's a ball boy. I mean, he's not even six feet tall. He's barely 160 pounds. And then when he goes on the court in the land of the Giants, the average NBA player is 6'7", 225. That's been pretty consistent over the past 20 years. I mean, a pound or two here or there, but pretty much the average NBA player is a giant, 6'7", 225. This guy is six foot 160. He won four scoring titles. He averaged over 40 minutes per game. His minutes per play, minutes per game averages are up there only behind basically Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell. The durability, the productivity, even if we can talk about efficiency, I'm sure that would be part of the conversation. But to watch what he could do at his size, it's amazing. And then he, he's a polarizing figure because the, the, the statistical view of the game, his efficiency, was he coachable, his interactions with Larry Brown, it's a whole separate thing. And I don't put Iverson in this, I don't put him in the same category as Kobe. Now with Kobe, you know, if you don't have him as a top, top player, then we definitely would disagree, but it would be an interesting uh, conversation to have. But a lot of times these players where the media evaluates them a certain way, it has to do with off the court things and it has to do with their interactions with the media. If you're not someone that gives the media what they like, what they want to hear, what they need at that time, it affects how you're evaluated. And those things are true of Iverson, Kobe Bryant, Russell Westbrook. There are players where it is clearly evident they don't give the media or did not give the media what they wanted. And when the MVP voting came around, that was reflected in that. Whereas if you look at someone like Steve Nash, and I've interviewed, well, I haven't interviewed Westbrook, but these other players I'm talking about, I've interviewed or at least been in the media scrum that was interviewing them. So I've seen the interaction. Steve Nash, you know, is like the greatest interview subject for anybody. Anybody approaching him, he's going to interact. Mike D'Antoni. And so you can understand when you're behind the scenes and you see that, then you can understand why things are portrayed a certain way. With Kobe Bryant, at times it was harder for people to get access to him. 
you know, you have to ask questions on a certain level or the way he would answer might make you feel like you didn't know what you were talking about. I enjoyed interviewing all of them. I enjoyed interviewing Nash. I enjoyed my interactions with Kobe. But, you know, in certain situations, you need to be prepared and need to understand what's taking place. And I think for media members at times that were not, you know, that is how they form some of the perspectives that they have. And, you know, LeBron James, you know, is a master of interacting with the media, giving them what they want. I observed that with him. I was covering him, you know, he had just come out of high school and the maturity that he had to be in the locker room as a high school kid on a bad NBA team. I'm talking about his first year, not later. I'm talking about he was a high school kid on a bad NBA team with grown people interviewing him and peppering him with questions. He never lost his poise. He never snapped at anybody. He answered every question, no matter how stupid it was. He would welcome you and engage you. And so that is why, although, you know, after the decision he may have gotten some negative coverage, but he has a lot of credibility built up within the media and a lot of people that like him and like interacting with him for understandable reasons. And with Iverson, you know, that was not the case. Practice, you know, all that stuff, the infamous things and other things that happened with him. And with Kobe Bryant, um, it was very polarized. There were some media members that really liked him and had access to him. And there were others that didn't. And everyone kind of had to choose like a Shaq side or a Kobe side at that time. But for me, when I write about these players, I'm analyzing their games. So whether somebody talked to me, didn't talk to me, talked to somebody else, whatever they did, what, what they did off the court, that to the best of my ability to do so, I don't have a conscious awareness that I'm applying a bias. We all have unconscious bias. But when I start looking at was Kobe Bryant better than Nash or better than Iverson or better than LeBron, I, I do a skill set analysis to the best of my ability to write about it. So when I say I think Kobe should have won more MVPs or Shaq or anyone else, it's the best of my ability to do a skill set analysis. So I'm happy, you know, we could do another podcast and, and talk about those things. But Kobe, you know, even, you know, with his untimely death might have, you know, softened the way some people that criticized him would talk about him. I don't know. But he will always be a polarizing figure in terms of comparing him to other players and where he ranks, where some people will say he's the greatest ever. Some people say he's not in the top 15. And even though some people who comment on my site think that I'm like the biggest Kobe fan ever, that I rank him number one. You can search the volumes of things I have written about Kobe. I never once said he was the greatest player of all time. I never said he was better than, than Michael Jordan. A lot of things that people assume I said or thought I said because I stuck up for him comparing him to his contemporaries, I never said those other things. In my opinion, I've been very measured about Kobe Bryant and I've just objectively said, look, th this is where he is. And this is why he's better than this player, why he's not better than that. And if you actually look in the 2009 season, for most of that season, if you follow the in-season article, I was saying I thought that Kobe should win the MVP. He was better than LeBron. And then by the end of the season, I said, you know what? Kobe's wearing down. LeBron is younger. He's bigger. He's stronger. And for this regular season, I switched. And so my, my take was evolving. In the previous two years, I said I thought Kobe should be the MVP. He won it one of those years. But I said, this year, you know what? I said, LeBron's leading the Cavs to the best record and, and his skill set, everything he's doing in this particular season. I said, this is the first season I feel like he has surpassed Kobe as a regular season player. But then, you know, then the Lakers won the championship and Kobe won the finals MVP. But for that regular season, I felt LeBron deserved the MVP. 
and I said it. And every year, you know, I didn't like what LeBron did with the decision, but I said, you know, Derek, Derek Roshan won the MVP over him. You know, you can go back and look at these kinds of things. And so I could write an article very critical of the decision and not liking certain things LeBron did. And I'd still say on a year to year basis, these are the years LeBron should have won the MVP. And these are the years he shouldn't have. And again, it's one man's opinion. I might be right. I might be wrong. But I always try to have a factual underpinning. These are the facts. These are the reasons for what I'm saying. Not just, I really like this guy. I don't like that guy. And I always pride myself on, hopefully, if someone's reading my writing, you have no idea which players talked to me and had a good interaction, which players blew me off. I really honestly hope, and I could tell some great stories about that because there are some players that I pump up historically and praise them because they deserve it, but yet I never got an interview with them. They blew me off, whatever, and it doesn't matter. And I can just give a quick example of that. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one of the most underrated players of all time. I tried multiple times to set up an interview with him. I was standing face-to-face or like looking up because he's so talking to him, wouldn't interview me put me through all these hoops, contact this person, contact that person to set it up. It, it was ridiculous. It doesn't impact my thoughts about him as a great player. Didn't change my analysis one bit. Whatever reason he was doing those kind of things, what does that have to do with Kareem compared to Wilt or Kareem compared to Moses Malone or anyone? It has nothing to do with it. Whether or not this guy will talk to me has nothing to do with anything. But I will tell you, most media members are not approaching it that way. And, and it's very evident. Some of them, if you talk to them privately, will openly admit that, at least privately. Some of them won't admit it, but you can just look at it and it's evident. And so it's, it's very obvious, you know, those kinds of things uh, take place. And it, it's um, one of the players we talked about previously, Scotty Pippen. A lot of media members don't like Scotty Pippen for, for a variety of reasons. And, and I was told before I ended up interviewing him, I was told before I tried to interview him, oh, don't, you're wasting your time. It's not going to talk to you. It's not going to give you anything good. But I always, I judge everybody on my interactions with them or what I observe, not somebody said, somebody did this. And the, and the funny thing is, I can tell you, if you're, if you're interested in it, the, the story of my interview with Scottie Pippen, it was his last season. And by that point, he had actually he would never play another NBA game. We didn't know it at the time. He was on the Chicago Bulls. His knee was messed up. He was traveling with the team, and they were hoping to, that he would come back, but he actually would never play another game. He was an active player, but essentially his career was over, though we didn't know that at the time. They're, they played the Indiana Pacers. At Indiana, I, I went and covered the game, but after the game, I went into the Bulls locker room, and I wanted to interview Scottie Pippen. had nothing to do with the game that was played. I wasn't the beat writer. I wasn't writing a recap of that game. I wanted to talk to him about his career, and I was working on an article about underrated forward. I considered him to be an underrated forward, but I also wanted to ask him about Mark Aguirre and other players that were potential candidates for that title. So I went up to him, and he he doesn't know who I am. There's been no interaction prior to that, and I'm relatively new in the business anyway. And I come up to him and say, hey, Scotty, you know, do you have a moment? I'd like to ask you a few questions. And, you know, and he's obviously, I'm 6'2", I'm 6'3", six six but he's much bigger than I am. So he's looking at me and like, and he just kind of gruffly said, why do you want to talk to me? I didn't play. Talk, talk to the guys that played in the games. So, you know, somebody else, that would be it. And then they would write about, you know, what a jerk Scotty Pippen is. I went up to him and he blah, blah, blah. But I understood there's a psychology here. He's not angry at me. He's, how can he be angry? He doesn't even know me. He's not angry at me. 
Scottie Pippen is self-conscious because he can't play. He can't help the team. He's injured. And, and he's self-conscious about why would someone want to talk to him about a game that he couldn't play in. And he's hurt mentally that he can't play. So my response to Scotty, I didn't get upset. I didn't get agitated. I didn't get frustrated. I just said, no, Scotty. I said, I'm, I'm not here covering the game. I said, I'm working on an article about the underrated forwards of all time. I also have some questions about your career. So the interview has nothing to do with this game. And then he kind of motioned to me, sat, sit down. We sat down, had a long interview. He actually talked to me till the last player had left the locker room. And then they were actually saying like the bus is about to leave. And he said, he said, I'm sorry, man, I got to go. Like I said, I understand. I don't want you to miss the bus. And the point is when you hear people are bad people or they're negative people, or you can't get a good quote for them, or they won't do an interview. Some of that has to do with the personality and the skill of the interviewer. And so I always take a lot of that with a grain of salt. Ever, ever since I had the opportunity for a several year period to interview current players, retired players, and I interviewed many people that I was told, Pippen being one of them, like that they would be a lousy interview. And it wasn't the case. And even if he was a lousy interview, then am I going to write he's not an underrated forward? I mean, even if he was a lousy interview, it still has nothing to do with the subject of the article. It just means I wouldn't have any quotes from him. But so much of it has to do with how you approach the person, how you approach the situation, and the knowledge that you have. I'll go back to when we talked about Tom Brown. I was not prepared to interview Tom Brown. You know, he's not someone that was on my radar. I'm not covering football. But when I started talking to him, I wasn't asking him, well, who are you? What years did you play? What team did you play for? Like, I knew basic things about him. I'm not an expert about the Green Bay Packers. And one of the things he said to me when we were talking, he respected, you know, I was coming to it with basic knowledge. And then I was asking him more advanced things. I was asking, why did the Packers start losing after Lombardi left? That's a more advanced question. I didn't say to him, what years did Vince Lombardi coach the Packers? He said to me, he didn't respect media members that would interview him and would ask him questions they should have been finding out in their preparation. If you're interviewing Tom Brown of the Green Bay Packers, you know that he played for the Packers. You know he was a safety. You know they won the Super Bowl. You know the basic facts that any moron could look up. And your purpose of speaking with him is to find out the things that only he knows, his perspective. He was on the practice field with Vince Lombardi. I wasn't. But anybody can look up a book and find out Vince Lombardi started coaching the Packers, you know, in 1960 and all these different things that happened, whatever, whatever the years were, that they won five championships in the 60s, two Super Bowls. Those are facts anybody can look up if you take the time to do it. And so when I approached Scotty, I was prepared. I had my questions ready. I knew what I was there to talk about. I was prepared that he might not want to talk to me. So, you know, we talked about practice preparation, game preparation. When he snapped, he didn't want to talk to me. I wasn't standing there in stunned silence because if I didn't answer, he would have just walked away or gone to the trainer's room where the media is not allowed to go. And that's the end. When he said that, I had an immediate response. It was a respectful response. It was an on point response. And then that's where things went. <clears throat> so I think, you know, back to Iverson, Kobe, uh, I would throw Russell Westbrook into this. Um, a lot of these guys have had these contentious interactions with media members, and that slants the way that they are portrayed. And I would even say this might seem really far afield, Terrell Owens, if you are Terrell Owens, Terrell Owens is a football player. If you look at Terrell Owens and you look at his background and his upbringing and the things and the challenges he overcame, 
and compare it to Brett Favre and Brett Favre and the challenges he overcame. Why aren't they both heroes? They both had different things that happened off the field, certain situations. I won't even get into some of the stuff that Brett Favre had. It's kind of been glossed over, but he's had his things off the field. People say, well, he never, he did. He had off the field stuff. I don't like talking about that for anybody, but just to say, if people say, well, Owens was a bad guy off the field or this or that, which he wasn't, but why is the media, why do they portray? Well, Brett Favre was engaging with the media. He was humorous. He was buddy-buddy with them. They went on fishing trips. It's all documented. These things he did to cultivate the media. Terrell Owens never cultivated anybody in the media. And so when it came time to write about things that happened in the locker room, on the field, different things, they always took the other, media would always take the other side. And, and I don't think that's fair. You just have to, you know, Owens did some things, said some things he shouldn't have said. So did Favre. But one guy is like the great American hero and the other guy isn't. Now with that, I mean, there could probably be somewhat of a racial component there. That'd be a whole other thing to get into. But I think above and beyond the racial part, which I think does play a role in that situation, it's the media. The media controls the narratives. And if you play that game, your status as a player will be elevated. And if you don't, it will be marginalized. And I think that explains a lot with Kobe, with Iverson, with Westbrook in particular. But it is to get into the skill set thing, you know, that would be a great, you know, a podcast uh, to do for sure. Yeah, next next one for sure. So let's get back to the book for a minute. Sure. Um, what, uh, well, wh where would you like to take the conversation? Yeah, because we mentioned it at the start and then we've had some very interesting digressions. The book is a great introduction to uh, the role that Jews played early on in the development of basketball. The personal narratives of Charlie Rosen and the people he interviewed, I think are interesting. The reservation that I have about it, and I mentioned this on our previous podcast when we talked about Charlie Rosen, and he wrote one of my favorite basketball books of all time, God, Man, and Basketball Jones. And I like Charlie Rosen as a writer, but you always kind of need to have a fact checker or an encyclopedia or something alongside you. Anytime he's talking about something that's purely a fact, this happened in this year or so forth, sometimes you need to be wary with him and check those things. He has some very basic things wrong in the chosen game. He has the wrong opponent for the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA Finals from a very recent year. We said they played the Spurs and they actually they played the Golden State Warriors. He has Neil Walk involved in a situation with the Phoenix Suns, and he's got the situations confused. It was something that happened in the 1980s. He's got somebody in the book listed as Harry Brown for several pages, but it's actually Harry Baum. He's got both names in there, like there's two different people, but it's one person, he's got the name wrong. He talks about one of the most famous um, basketball teams of the early 20th century, the Philadelphia Spas, but he calls them the Philadelphia Spas. Every single time he's got the wrong name, uh, for that particular uh, team. And then I was, I'm looking through my notes. Then the other thing that he does um, that I think you also have to be aware of, um, and I'm an attorney, but like some of the things he presents, I would call it hearsay. Like there are a couple of things in the book and I don't even want to mention what they are. I don't want to give it like more publicity when he put in the book, but there are situations he describes in the book where he will say, it's well known that this happened or so and such a thing happened because this particular person did this wrong thing and then they got banished. And then you go through, and I'm very conversant with NBA history and basketball history, and you can't find any documentation to prove it. And so what I always say, you know, as an attorney, like, you have to prove that. If you're going to tell me this person was banned because they did X, Y, Z, 
I, I need the court documents. I need the, the, the press release from the NBA. I need the testimony. Otherwise, you're just giving an opinion. Now, if there's one person that, you know, played in this playoff series and interacted with this person that felt that happened, that's okay as a writer. You can say, hey, I interviewed Joe Blow and Joe Blow told me this. And, you know, and then the reader can judge the credibility of Joe Blow, whether I agree or disagree. But it's not, quote unquote, well known that something happened because Joe Blow said it happened 70 years ago and most of these people are deceased and we have no way to, to cross-examine or verify that. And then the other thing with, with uh, Rosen, and I think a lot of uh, viewers or listeners or readers may know about this, but it's worth mentioning, he is very close with Bill Jackson and there's nothing wrong with that. But anyone that Rosen writes about that had an interaction with Bill Jackson, the, the writing and the perspective, it's going to be very much aligned with Jackson. So for example, if, if Charlie Rosen is writing about Larry Brown, Larry Brown and Phil Jackson were coaching rivals for decades, rivals to get the same jobs, coaching against each other in the NBA finals and so on. So when Charlie Rose is writing about Larry Brown, you can kind of hear Phil Jackson whispering in the background. And so you just, you understand that that's the case. And then you can take all of that with a grain of salt. It doesn't necessarily mean that what Rosen said was true or not true, but you understand that there is, um, I don't want to say a bias, but there's that underlying background knowledge one should have. Same thing when he's writing about Jerry Reinsdorf, when Rosen writes about Reinsdorf, the owner of the Chicago Bulls, or Jerry Krause, when he's writing about those people. Phil Jackson obviously had very contentious interactions with them, ultimately ended up um, being fired or resigning, however you want to view it, but no, was asked to not work for the team prior to their final championship. And, and I wrote about this, and I criticized Reinsdorf and Krause. I have heard of coaches being told, if you don't win, you're fired. And, you know, you can agree or disagree, but that could be a valid perspective. It's the owner's money. If the owner says, I gave you a championship roster, win or you're out. That's one thing. I have never in the history of sports heard of a coach coming off of two consecutive titles and in five in the past, you know, five, six years being told. And, and Krause said to Phil Jackson, you could go 82-0 and and win the championship. You're not coming back. We're rebuilding. We're going in a different direction. I've never heard of that. It's absurd, and I criticized it. But that being said, when Rosen gets into specific details about um, Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause and certain other things and their interactions or, or their overall beliefs and values in life and certain things, you know, Phil Jackson understandably influenced that. And Phil Jackson, I'm sure, felt hurt and wronged by what happened. But still, there are other nuanced sides to things. And even though I'm not a huge fan of Jerry Reinsdorf or Jerry Krause, I think a more balanced portrayal of their overall role in things, which was critical but balanced, can be found, you know, with Roland Lazenby, with Sam Smith, that were insiders to these things, and were certainly critical of things that they did that were wrong, but give maybe a more full or a complete picture in terms of Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause. So those were kind of the reservations I had with the book in terms of some of the, the, the factual statements that aren't factual, um, just for readers to understand that Rosen has an affinity for Phil Jackson. And it, and it is a pattern with Rosen's writing that's a little bit um, disturbing to be aware of. And I can give an example. I wrote an article about this. Um, when he was writing for Fox Sports, he wrote a passionate article, how great Willis Reed was as a player. The skill set analysis was 100% on point. Not one thing I could disagree with. But the premise and the reason that Rosen wrote the article, he said, why isn't Willis Reed in the Hall of Fame? He's so underrated. Willis Reed was inducted in the Hall of Fame decades ago. 
And so, like, how can you be writing an article and you got the most basic fact wrong? Now, again, if you knew nothing about Willis Reed and you read Charlie Rosen's article, you would learn why Willis Reed was a great player. So it's like there's such this paradox that Rosen, the skill set analysis was on point. But like the basic premise, and again, there's this thing you talked about preparation. You can go to the NBA guide. It has a section, every person that's in the Hall of Fame. If you're not sure, check. Now, I don't know how someone could not know that Willis Reed's in the Hall of Fame if you've been covering basketball. But if you didn't know, just check. I check things. I don't. I know a lot off the top of my head. But when I write an article, if I'm not 110% sure, I check. And most of the time I'm right, honestly, but I still check because I don't want to ever be wrong. And I don't want to assume that I, that I know everything. And so when Rosen makes those kinds of errors, it's just baffling. And, you know, and he wrote a whole book about the Lakers and, you know, in their, their, their 1972 championship season when they went 69 and 13. He is supposed to be a subject matter expert on that era. That team played against Willis Reed's Knicks. If you're researching that team in that era, how would you not know how everything played out? Not just what happened in 1972, but that Willis Reed, yeah, he ended up going in the Hall of Fame. He's on the top 50 list, the official top 50 list from the NBA. Now, is he underrated? I mean, maybe you could still argue, maybe he should be higher rated than he is. I don't know, but he's on the top 50 list and he's in the Hall of Fame. If I were writing about Willis Reed, I would not start with the theme he's underrated. I, I would explain what he did that was great, Maybe younger fans don't know about him. He might not be as known to the 35 and under, 40 and under group. But I wouldn't say like in a historical context, like he's an underrated player. Like Artis Gilmore had to wait 20 years, 30 years to be in the Hall of Fame. Roger Brown wasn't inducted until after he passed away. I wrote about those guys. Those guys were underrated. I mean, criminally underrated by the sanctioning bodies that should know better. And for Roger Brown, it's a tragedy that, you know, he didn't get to be in the Hall of Fame when he was alive and could appreciate it. And Gilmore, at least, you know, is still alive, but, but waited so many years. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things. And, you know, it's important to know the facts, to look at that Hall of Fame roster, to have the Rolodex in your mind of who are the greatest players of all time. And if you really want to focus on somebody that's underrated, rather than writing a column, Willis Reed, who's top 50 Hall of Fame, he's underrated. You know, I would have, if I had had the platform he had at that time and was writing for Fox Sports, I would have written Artis Gilmore's underrated. How's this guy not in the Hall of Fame? Average 20 and 20 in college, one of only five players to do that. Look what he did in, in the ABA and in the NBA. How's this guy not in the Hall of Fame? You know, I wrote those things on my blog. I didn't have, you know, the Fox Sports, you know, platform to do that, but I wrote about those things and I thought it was important. But one thing I did, and I have no idea if it had any influence at all, when Jerry Colangelo was put in charge of the Hall of Fame, this, um, uh, I was at one of the All-Star Weekends, and he was there when they made the announcement of who'd been inducted. And I actually, I walked up to him, and I said, you know, now that you're, you know, I was very respectful, but I said to him, and I gave him the list. I said, Artis Gilmore, Roger Brown, um, Slick Leonard. I was listening, you know, all these guys from the ABA. And I said, these are people that have been neglected for decades. What, what, what is your plan for the Hall of Fame, you know, to rectify that? And then he answered me and he said to me, um, he wouldn't talk about a specific player. Or, you know, he said he's not going to get into a specific player. But he said he knows that there have been like basically like flaws with the process. And he was going to put measures in place. People that have been neglected would not be neglected, you know, under his watch. And, and I don't know if that had anything to do with my question. I don't claim that. 
but he formed an ABA committee and they were inducting one ABA player each year from the special committee that would research the ABA. They put Gilmer in, they put Roger Brown in, Mel Daniels, Slick Leonard, Louis Dampier. And so again, like I'm not taking credit for what had happened, but the point being, you have to ask the right person the right question at the right time. That was the question to ask, but you have to have the background in the subject matter to know, hey, the guy that's running the Hall of Fame, the question he needs to be asked is the guys who aren't in there who deserve to be in there. And you know their names. You're giving him a specific thing to deal with. And then, and then you track. And you know what? Every year when they inducted one of those people, when I wrote my article about it, I gave Jerry Colangelo credit. I said, look, he, he inherited this situation. This is a question I asked him. I'm not saying I had anything to do with it. But the point is, I asked him the question. This is something that had to be at the forefront of his mind at some point, And it got rectified. And it, it's historically important. So that was, I know it was a long-winded answer that went all, all over the place, but it, the, the key points are Charlie Rosen is an interesting, engaging writer that can provide a good introduction to a lot of different subject matter situations, but he needs to be fact-checked at times. He has an understandable affinity to Phil Jackson. Be aware of that with anything that you read that Rosen writes. And the third part of it, when people have a platform, use the platform for good use the platform to speak up for the people who can't speak, who you know, Roger Brown's deceased, or maybe the people don't have the voice or the ability or the opportunity to explain what his greatness was. Use that platform to do that. And so that, you know, anytime someone has a great platform and they use it to write about something that doesn't make sense or that's factually incorrect or whatever, it's not just that that article has to be corrected. It was a missed opportunity to do something else. And that's why I'm so passionate sometimes when I write about why did this person write this article? And one, the article, in, in my opinion, is wrong. And I'll give three reasons why this article made no sense. This player evaluation, we'll talk about Kobe Bryant, but whatever, whatever the case might be, this article made no sense. And then I would also say, you know what? In the bandwidth that this person who has a large audience used to say these things about Kobe Bryant that aren't even correct, where's Roger Brown? Who's speaking up for Roger Brown before Roger Brown was in the Hall of Fame? And I would say that about people that were at ESPN or other, you know, I said, these people have this opportunity to broadcast this information and to make a difference. And instead, they're getting into these things that are poorly researched, that don't make sense. And it's an opportunity cost and it's an opportunity lost to have used that platform in such a, a, a better way. And sometimes I, I think people might have misunderstood or misconstrued, like, why am what are you so upset about it? Why are you writing that? Or why are you saying that? Why are you calling this person out or that person? I think, well, they're not utilizing, in my opinion, the platform that they have been given for the time frame that they have it for the good that they could do. And to me, that, that's just an awful thing. O only a handful of people are going to have a national or international platform to reach hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And you don't know how long you're going to have that platform when you have the opportunity to do it. What did you do with that opportunity? And if all you did with that opportunity was, you know, to write an article that bashed Kobe Bryant because he didn't give you an interview, was that really the best use of that time? You know, when there's so much else that could have been done. And if you wanted to criticize Kobe Bryant, then, you know, there's legitimate things that could be written about. I can tell you one of the things we can talk about when we do that podcast. I wrote an article about um, uh, narratives. And if you go back and look at Kobe Bryant, and I've gone back and looked almost every year of his career, there was this narrative of either 
he wasn't a good team player, but he was becoming one, or he still wasn't a good team player. You can go back and find quotes, uh, and, and they were just rerunning the same narrative over and over. But you can also find quotes that point out in the championship season, Larry Brown and others were saying, Kobe Bryant has learned to be a good team player. He's doing the things he needs to do now. And then it gets forgotten. And then five years later, they're saying, oh, now Kobe just, and that's why he won the MVP finally, because he learned to be a good team player. I'm like, really? Did you not read the article in the Sporting News? Did you not see the quote from Larry Brown? Like, why are we revisiting this over and over? But there's such a lack of historical awareness of what narratives have been written. Is there support for it or truth for it or, or not? And that's why when we talked about basketball writers I like, I mentioned Kevin Ding from the Orange County Register. Anyone that goes back and looked at his Lakers coverage, he didn't have any agenda that I could observe. When he wrote about Shaq, Kobe, Pau Gasol, Phil Jackson, whoever he wrote about, he was a beat writer, he was in the locker room, he was covering it, and he wrote what he saw. And you could tell he had an understanding at a higher level of what was happening. And he just wrote what he saw. And there wasn't an agenda. Almost everyone else that was writing in that era, within two paragraphs or two sentences, you knew this is a Kobe guy or this is a Shaq guy. You could tell. And they've admitted it now. I've heard J.A. Adandi, you know, he, he used to be at ESPN. Now he's a professor at Northwestern. And he talks about, he says, yeah, you know, I was a Shaq guy. And Jim Gray has talked about, yeah, I was a Kobe guy. And I've always thought to myself, why? And I'm not saying that those guys, you know, those guys have accomplished a lot in the field. I'm not necessarily 100% taking a shot at them, although I guess I am a little bit. But but why, why would you be a Shaq guy or a Kobe guy? Why wouldn't you just be a truth guy? Why wouldn't you just be a I'm reporting what actually happened guy? But I understand, you know, they might have felt like I've got to ally myself with one or the other or I won't get quotes from either. But I'll tell you, I, I worked and I did interviews with people and I felt like in the time I was covering the NBA, you didn't have to be a quote unquote this guy or that, that guy. You know, I was told Scotty Tippin wouldn't do an interview. I was told Oscar Robertson, you know, he's going to be a lousy interview. He won't talk to you. He's grumpy. Okay. Well, and if you, if you have a couple minutes for me to just briefly talk about Oscar, why might Oscar Robertson be grumpy? Think about the racism he dealt with. He led the first, you know, all black team to win a high school championship in Indiana. They wouldn't give them a parade through downtown. It was the first high school championship team that didn't get a parade because I don't know people, you can speculate whatever reason, but they didn't want that team parading through downtown Indianapolis. So they had some other kind of ceremony that wasn't on the same scale. The racism he dealt with at every level, high school, college, and professional. He wanted to be a coach or to be a general manager. Couldn't get a job in the NBA. He was involved in the lawsuits having to do with the collective bargaining agreement. You can pretty much say he was blackballed because of his activism, because of what he did and what he said. He couldn't get the job that he wanted to, and he'd earned the opportunity to have. Maybe he would have been the worst coach ever. I don't know. Who knows? But he had he earned the right to be an NBA coach. If Oscar Robertson wanted to be an NBA coach, he deserved the opportunity to fall on his face if that's what would happen. I don't know, or to be a general manager. So think about the things that he went through and all of the, the, the interactions and stuff that he had over decades. And people say he's grumpy. I mean, my, my point of view, when people said that, to me, and I and I know Oscar Robertson's career, I thought to myself, and this, and this is the guy has a right to be grumpy. If he's grumpy and I'm talking to him, like I, I can accept that. And when I talked to him, he wasn't grumpy to me, but he had some like grumpy opinions. He 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 thinks he's better than, than Michael Jordan, and he has reasons to think that. And you know what? You can agree, you can disagree, 
But, you know, I will tell you, if I averaged 30 points and 10 plus rebounds and 10 plus assists in a season, if I had those as my aggregate totals for the first five years of my career, if I played on a championship team with Kareem, if I was the all-time assist leader when I retired, I might think I'm the greatest basketball player ever. I, I don't think that's an insane thing to think. I often say, if you reach a certain level in your profession, it's not insane, it's not mental illness to think you're the greatest. There could be 10 or 15 people who think they're the greatest basketball player or greatest chess player ever, and they're not crazy to think that. Now, 14 of them are wrong, but they're not crazy. Now, if you're sitting on the end of the bench and you think you're the greatest basketball player ever, you know, you might, you might be mentally ill. There might, there might be some issues there. There might be some problems. So when Oscar Robertson is telling me why he thinks he's better than Michael Jordan, when he's telling me, you know, uh, he was saying like some of the things that Pistol Pete did, he said, we could do that. But as black ball players, if we did that, we were called showboats. So I didn't do those kinds of things. And he kind of resented the coverage that Pistol Pete had. And he had some, some opinions about Pistol Pete as a college player, as a pro player. Now, did I agree with every single thing he said? Pistol Pete's my second favorite player of all time. I didn't necessarily agree with everything that Oscar said, but he has a right. And I, I published the interview and said, you know, I interviewed Oscar Robertson and this is what he said. And I didn't feel the need to interject my opinions. Well, I, David Friedman, this is what I think of Pistol Pete. Oscar Robertson is one of the greatest players ever. He deserves a platform to speak, to say his opinions, and not have me going in there in the interview and nitpicking it. I can write a separate article about Pistol Pete and I can give the David Friedman take and people can view that however they want. So just this thing of, you know, being a Kobe guy or a Shaq guy or this guy's grumpy or that guy's grumpy. Um, I, I always like to find out those things on my own. And often what I found out is what people were telling me it was their own biases or frankly their own ineptitude people that don't know how to do research and do an interview are not able to do an interview if you're interviewing oscar robertson and you don't know the history and you're asking him like did you play for the cincinnati royals who did you know i'm pretty sure that interview is not going to go well if you're coming up to him and asking him an intelligent question and then sitting back and, and filling up your tape recorder then the interview is going to go fine and yeah he's quote unquote grumpy but i mean my goodness if there's anybody that has a right to be grumpy, think of the life experiences that he has had. I mean, and then, you know, in his personal life, I mean, he donated his kidney to save his daughter's life. So the personal traumas and things that he has gone through, the, the upstanding individual and person that he is, you know, and I've never interviewed Jerry West, but everything I've read, Jerry West is just in awe of him and admires him. And they were contemporaries and rivals. And so like to sum him up, he's grumpy. I mean, to me, that's just a travesty. And, you know, I'm, and, and, and it's lazy. It's lazy yes. writing. It's lazy reporting. It is. Yeah. So, you know, I was happy to have those opportunities. I interviewed him on, on multiple occasions. And, you know, he had opinions that if people think they're grumpy, I mean, that's okay. And, and, and I always say, like, when I interview people, I don't have to agree with everything they say. I don't agree with everything Kobe said, Oscar Robertson. I interviewed a bunch of people. And, and when I publish the interview, I don't use the interview as my opportunity, unless there's a factual mistake or something. I don't, the interview is the interview. That is, I'm giving this person or this person has the opportunity to give their take. And then I can put on my commentator hat in a different article and I don't even have to directly address, well, Oscar said this, but I think that. The Oscar Robertson interview is a work unto itself. I questioned him, he answered, it speaks for itself. And then, if I have a different evaluation of Pistol Pete Maravich, I can do a different article and I don't have to make it into this 
you know, this controversy or the grumpiness or, or whatever. So there's just so much that happens in the media that's just, you know, so frustrating to me. Yeah. But yeah. And, and like you said, Rosen is a is a excellent storyteller. And then he just kind of gets these, some of these basic facts wrong. Let's um let's end here. Uh, I have one more thought, and I kind of want to get your reaction to it. Okay. So the book, to me, it's really uh, an immigrant story or a story of immigration and a story of how um, either people who were born in the U.S. recent and their parents had just moved here or they moved here as immigrants. Um, I'm speaking as far as this book goes, primarily of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, but um, how much of the, of the greatness of America uh, comes from immigrants from all over the world and how much it's wrapped up with prejudice and hatred and stupidity, uh, which I thought Rosen did a nice job of interweaving that throughout the, throughout the narrative. Um, it's like, you know, it's, it's so much greatness combined with so much pain, combined with so much pettiness of, you know, various people not getting along. Uh, it's, it's just a big messy story, but, but to me, ultimately it was a story about immigration. Yes, I think, I think, well, I mean, I think it's ultimately, I mean, it's about several things, but that is definitely one of the key themes. And I think that that's true. And I think it also, you know, there's a lot of reasons why Jews were more prominent in basketball early. They're not as prominent now. But one of the things is like what you're talking about, the immigrant story, and also just the story of people, you know, from, from um, economic backgrounds where they're kind of working their way up. The athletes in general in any society tends to come from the socioeconomic class where there are fewer options or fewer opportunities. And so it's a little bit like a lottery ticket. It's a one in a million chance that you're going to make it to the NBA. But if there's other avenues that are just closed off or completely inaccessible, you know, hey, it's a lottery ticket. I might not make it, but if I make it, I'm a multimillionaire. Whereas when you're in a socioeconomic strata where there are other options available that have a higher percentage likelihood of success, that's what tends to happen. You can see it with basketball, with boxing. You know, boxing was also, you could write a book. I think some books have been written about whether or not people believe this or know this. Boxing was heavily Jewish in the early 20th century. It was Jewish, Irish, Italian, but then those economic groups, those immigrants became more integrated in society. They moved up in their group status within the country. Then you would see African-Americans, Latinos, other groups that either were, some of them were more recent immigrants. Some of them were just their socioeconomic class was still near the bottom and uh, the way the society was structured. And so those were the groups that with boxing, no pun intended, are fighting their way out of the ghetto. Whereas people that as a group have kind of left the ghetto status then they're not going as much into those sports. Now, there's a lot of explanations of why different ethnic groups are in different sports, but um, th this book, The Chosen Game with the Jewish People, it's a great example. Like you say, these were recent immigrants. Rosen discusses early in the book, football, soccer. There were so many sports. They were basically inaccessible uh, to Jewish people at that time. There were other, you know, um, you know, there were quotas against Jews going to certain colleges and going into certain fields. He didn't mention that as much explicitly, but that was definitely an issue at the time. So if you're a young Jewish immigrant, you're in the country, you have limited economic opportunities, limited things you can explore, what are you going to go into? Basketball, I mean, you can have roll up some socks, put a hoop on the wall, and you can practice, and you can become good at it. 
And it's the same thing there, uh, Neil Gabler or Gabler, I think wrote a book about Jews in Hollywood. Why was Hollywood, um, why was there so much of a Jewish influence in Hollywood early on? The same kind of thing. Jews did not have economic access to other um, career opportunities. And, and Hollywood, you know, films, it was a new technology. It wasn't as regulated, it wasn't as organized. So anybody that was sharp and it was aggressive and ambitious and was willing to take a risk. And if you don't have an opportunity to do something conventional, it's not risky, why won't you take a risk? So you go out to Hollywood, you start making movies. That story is a similar kind of thing to the story with basketball. It's the, the combination of you're, you're new in the country, there's limited opportunities, you go to the area, that, and it's interesting, both Hollywood and basketball at that time, they're considered like somewhat disreputable. Like why would a reputable person play pro basketball? Why is a reputable person going to go to Hollywood? So these were areas where, where Jews were going into it in the so-called reputable people. They weren't saying, well, I, we should go in there and dominate this field. It's like, well, we'll leave that to the Jews. We don't wanna go and do those things at that time. And then as viewpoints changed, uh, different ethnic groups moved up and down or around on the, uh, socioeconomic totem pole, then those perspectives shifted. But you're right, it is an immigrant story. And I think, you know, welcoming of immigrants, it, you know, America has always had a mixed, you know, mixed outcome or a mixed perspective on that. But overall, immigration has benefited our country. And, and that can be a whole political issue to talk about. I mean, there has to be, you know, laws in place. Or, I mean, it's a complex issue. But overall, the influx of different kinds of people with different perspectives and different backgrounds, it's an overall positive. It's always been a positive overall, but it's also met with hatred. It's met with resistance. And so it's a complex story, but that is very much an aspect you know, of the chosen game and of what he was talking about there. And then you can see that being replicated with other ethnic groups in other sports and in other fields of endeavor, whenever people will say, why is this group dominant in this area and less dominant in others? There is often an explanation based on, you know, the opportunities that are available and, you know, the rational choices both groups and individuals make. When, when you're a member of a group that's being persecuted in one area and there's an opportunity here, then that's what happens. And then things shift and things change. And, you know, people pursue different opportunities um, at those times. The other thing I would say, I wanted to mention, it's not in the book, but I think it's relevant to consider when people would talk about are Jews overrepresented or underrepresented in the NBA. I think a lot of times people don't know percentages. The Jewish population of the United States is less than 3%. The Jewish population of the world is like less than a tenth of 1%. And Jews are talked about so much in the media. I think people think there are a lot more Jews than there actually are. So we would say, well, why are there so few Jews in the NBA? Well, there's roughly, I think, 450 players in the NBA, give or take. So if you take 3% of that, which you would expect the representation to be, would be 12 or fewer Jews in the NBA based on the American population. But understand, I think 80 to 100 players now are from overseas. So the NBA is drawing from a world population now, not just the US population. The Jewish population of the world is one-tenth of one percent. So when you look and you say, well, why are there only, you know, a handful of Jews in the NBA? Well, the Jews are a tiny percentage of the world population. So if you're going to take a 450-person group, you know, you're not going to expect to find a lot of Jews. Any random, you know, I know it's not random because it's selected by skill set and height, but essentially a random selection of a relatively small group of people. And then why isn't this tiny minority in there that much? 
I mean, I think there's a statistically valid explanation for that. Whereas when you're looking at the early days of the NBA and, you know, blacks were excluded at one point in time, there was no, there were no foreign players. There were only a handful of teams. And then when you're looking at the opportunities and the percentages and all those things at that time, it's easier to understand why there were more at that time. And it's not so hard to explain why there are fewer now when the opportunities are broader and the population percentages are what they are and the pool of players so much broader. I mean, the NBA was called the National Basketball Association. All these teams were on the East Coast. <laughs> they're, they're all East Coast teams drawing their talent from the East Coast where that was the small Jewish population that existed was all located in that area. So when you've got a small number of teams in a regional league that's somewhat quote unquote disreputable, yeah, so that, that's where they're gonna be drawing their players from. As the league becomes national and international, all these other things happen. It's not, to me, it's not like such a huge mystery why there aren't as many Jewish players now when you look at that larger context. I mean, there are other things as well, but, but that's a good point to stop with that. Just to, put some clarity if people don't know the statistics or the numbers, so just some food for thought there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. David, this is, as always, just been a treat. Uh, I feel like both times that we've talked, we could just talk for another hour and a half easily. Um, yep. So let's, let's uh, pencil in Kobe Bryant and maybe Alan Iverson for, for round three, whenever we get to <laughs> okay. that. Uh, please. You might need an hour for each no problem i, I don't no know problem. Both, i don't know if they'll both fit in, into one uh, oh, well. certainly with kobe i mean uh anyone that's been to my site knows i i've written a ton about him dating back 15 16 years dating back to early in his career when i was just starting to get a credential and covering the nba um uh, i haven't written as much about iverson but i have i have strong opinions about him as well we're probably closer in agreement on him i might think of i don't know exactly what you think of iverson with, with Bryant, there might be more of a, of a disagreement, but I've written a let's, lot about Bryant. Let, let's keep it to Kobe, and I'll go um, and read, read the articles that you've written so that I can have a better understanding what you think. Speaking of which, tell everybody where they can find your work, please. Sure. So my website uh, for NBA basketball is 22nd uh, Timeout. So it's 22ndtimeout.blogspot.com. The 20 is spelled out. It's the number 20. And the reason... Uh, for that name is just, you know, because NBA is the only level of basketball that has a 20-second timeout. So just the name of the blog or the website, you immediately understand this is, you know, 99% NBA basketball. Every once in a while, I you know, I'll write about something else there, but uh, something else basketball related. But for the most part, I'm focusing on the NBA. That's my area of expertise. That's my area of focus uh, pertaining to basketball. So, and that website actually, in the right-hand sidebar, there is a Kobe Bryant section. Doesn't have every article I've written about Kobe because there are a ton, but there is a section. It's a cross section over the past 15, 16 years. There's a LeBron James section uh, as well. There's a Julius Irving section. Um, so there are links that anyone that wants to get kind of a quick view, might not be so quick, the articles are lengthy, but if they want easy access to my opinions about those players, I, I shouldn't say quick, but an easy access to my opinions about those players, um, those, those players, um, have their own separate sections in the sidebar. I don't have a separate Allen Iverson section, but uh, you know, if you go to the website and just type in Allen Iverson in the search bar, I have written a lot of articles uh, about him as well over the years, but I never curated uh, a separate section about him per se. But, but I do have a lot of content about him. If you go in there, you'll find um, in 
um, some disagreements that I've had with people about how to evaluate him over the years. So I, I was involved in different conversations and things about that over the years. So that, that is in there um, as well. Yep, and so that's 22ndtimeout.blogspot.com, right? Yes, correct, and, yep. And as I said earlier in the pod, David's writing is fantastic. It's just, you, you can actually sense your training as an attorney I think in your writing because it's so clear and logical in the way that it's laid out. So I can't recommend that enough. And uh, I will say though, yeah. to be honest, I I was writing that way before I got the attorney training, just gotcha. to, to be clear. Gotcha. And the funny thing is when I went to law school, legal writing was actually one of the more difficult classes at first. And when I met with the professor and, and we were talking about my background and I'd been a professional writer and he said, you have, in order to succeed in law school legal writing, you have to unlearn everything you know about writing except grammar and punctuation. Because legal writing, and I actually, I made a blog post about this a while back. There is a difference between legal writing and, and journalistic writing, other than grammar and punctuation. But I would say going to law school further refined the natural inclination I have to organize things in a certain structure to not just make an assertion, but to state facts and then have the assertions to back them up. So that, that refined some of that and heightened that in certain ways. But I was doing a similar kind of thing uh, even prior so, to the law. So what, what you're saying is you were always a great writer. <laughs> I, I guess maybe I'm saying it that way, but, but well, the, are, the logic so. or the structure, the logic yeah. or the structure was there prior to that. And yeah. then after I went to law school and had to forget journalism to learn how to do legal writing, and then once I knew how to do both, now I know how to do both. Then I found Best I could now ways. take what I learned from law and further refine my journalism. So my journalism didn't really help that much with the legal writing. But once I got trained as a legal writer, I think it refined and honed the structuring of some of my arguments later on. I guess someone could do some kind of meta comparison if you look at you know, my writing prior to 2014 and then the writing since that time. Um, what ways has it possibly changed or been refined? Uh, I think maybe I've gotten a little bit um, less lengthy at times, less verbose. In legal writing, sometimes you need to really cut to the point. Sometimes there's even a word count limit or a page limit. Uh, and I tend to be verbose, as anyone listening to the podcast can tell. But um, sometimes the legal writing may have informed a, a capability at times to be less verbose and just right. get in. Hit, hit the point and leave and not um, go beyond that. But I, I appreciate the compliments. I appreciate anyone that comes to the website. And, and I engage with people who come there. I read an article, agree or disagree, as long as it's respectful. I mean, if you completely disagree with my take on Kobe Bryant, but you have an intelligent reason for doing so, if you look at the Kobe Bryant articles, there are a lot of comments in there from all over the map. And anybody that was respectful, I would engage with them. They would say, nice. Kobe Bryant's overrated because of this. I'd say, well, did you consider this? Did you consider that? It's only the right. people that just come in and are just insulting or completely ignorant, you know, where they don't know the basic facts. That's yeah. where I would get impatient. I'd just say, like, you need to know the basic facts. Like, you know, they cite a statistic that's wrong. I was like, well, we can't do a comparison based on you not knowing the facts. Like, right. you got to right. go back and learn the facts. Right. <laughs> then, then we can talk. The facts, right. Then if you, if you think the facts lead to this conclusion, now we can talk. But when you're right. saying this, that, or the other happened and it didn't happen, I just kind of cut off the conversation. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to engage with the person that, you know, we, we can't argue about what the facts are. Right. We have to right. have an agreed right. upon set of actual facts. Right. And go now we there. can talk about, 
you know, what happened. Yeah. You know, because basketball, is the, it's this great interplay of the interactions of the players on the court. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when Pau Gasol, you know, is shooting 60% from the field, 58%, 60%, is that because of his greatness? Is that because of Kobe's playmaking? Is that because of the defense being drawn to Kobe? What percentages do we ascribe to that? How do we break that down? That can be an opinion, but we got to first have the stats straight. What, what was his shooting percentage in Memphis? What is his shooting percentage? That we we got to have our facts straight, and then we can say, okay, this is what the, the the stats were. This is what they are. Now we can look at the film. Now we can talk about what we're observing and why we think things have changed, or or what it means. Um, and those kinds of conversations are interesting. And I I think I've become humbler over the years. Uh, in terms of more like having the conversation, I have strong opinions, but you know, I might be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, I ha- I have well-founded, well-researched opinions, but a lot of these things are complex and it might not be as simple as I'm right and somebody else is wrong. Maybe we're both right. We're both wrong. And th- those are nuances I've gained a greater appreciation for as I've gotten older. So some of my earlier uh, Kobe Bryant writing or Alan Iverson writing uh, might be a little bit more strident than the way I would say it now, even though my opinions have not necessarily changed that much in terms of evaluating them as players. But if you go back and you look at the older articles, you might see a more strident tone. And that's okay. I'm not ashamed of it. That's part mm-hmm. of my growth as a person or as a writer. I, I, I wouldn't go back and change it. I'm not going to edit it or change it. I, I said what I said. I meant when I said it. I'm not going to back off of it. But if you asked me the same question today, I, I would probably you know, phrase it a little bit differently. And also a lot of times in those writings, I think I put a lot of emphasis on talking about the person that had expressed the opinion I disagreed with and what that person's qualifications were or what that person was showing about their lack of qualifications. And now I would simply go directly into so-and-so said this and that about Kobe Bryant, and this is why I disagree. And I wouldn't get into as much, why is this person on this platform or that platform? It kind of speaks for itself after a while. If I'm making a strong enough argument and I'm on this platform and another person's on that other platform, I don't need to complete the circle. I don't need to, I don't need to be the one saying, why am I here and that person's there? And it kind of detracts from the argument and it's bringing other things into the conversation as opposed to just saying, so-and-so said this and I think that. And that's more of the approach I'm taking now. Mm-hmm. But I mean... I've always wondered, and, and I still wonder, why are certain people on certain platforms, and why did they, why did those things happen? And I've come to reach a level of acceptance of that's not for me to decide or control. I'm not deciding or controlling who's on which platform, how that, how those decisions were made. I'm never going to understand it. I'm never going to control it. And it, there's only so much en- energy that one can expend speculating about that or talking about that. At a certain point, right. you know, I just got back to why I started the website in the first place. I started the website right. to analyze basketball at a high level. And that's where I, I need to just keep the focus. And I try to really just do that, even when I get very frustrated about, like I said, and sometimes it wasn't even just why, like, why aren't why I is, this Why is Stephen A. Smith famous and you're not? <laughs> that could be one way to put it. But the other thing is, why is Stephen A. Smith or somebody else talking about this? And artist Gilmore, you know, God forbid, might have died and before he was inducted in the Hall of Fame. Fortunately, that's right. not what happened. Right. But like, and those were the things that I resented even more so, whether or not people will believe that, more so than like my personal status. I've been on my own life journey. I've learned from every step. 
I'm happy with where I'm at. I'm happy with the struggles and the joys and everything that's happened. I've learned from it. I've grown from it, even things that I didn't appreciate at the time. So I don't have complaints about myself as much as I sincerely believe what I said earlier. When you have a platform, whether, you know, however many people I'm reaching, other people are reaching millions of people. What are you using that platform for? You have a platform, you have God-given gifts. And what are you doing with what you have? And so I always want to be able to look back at 22nd time out and say, whatever audience I had, whatever exposure I had, people can look at it and can say what I was doing with the platform. I talked about the players that weren't getting their pensions. I talked about the players that should have been in the Hall of Fame that weren't. I talked about Julius Irving being underrated within the pantheon of great players. I talked about things that were worth discussing, that I had a perspective that was researched and valuable and could add to the conversation. I wasn't talking about what the players were doing off the court, the drama, the social media. Who's going to care about that 20 years from now? What people going back and forth or nonsense, what they're doing on social media. Certain, this has no historical significance. It, it, today's news and it's filling the birdcage liner, you know, it's the birdcage liner tomorrow. Who cares? Why am I going to waste time talking about that? I want 20 second timeout, even if it sounds arrogant, 100 years from now, when I'm gone, if somebody wants to understand basketball from when I started the website in 2005 to whenever it finishes, if someone wants to understand what was happening in the NBA at that time, I want someone to be able to look at that website and say, this is an authoritative, accurate, well-researched, well-written uh, body of information. That This is an archival material. If I know nothing about the NBA from 2005 to whenever I stop doing it, I can go to this website and, and to the best of David Friedman's ability, it was objective. I mean, we all have biases. We all have limitations. But to the best of my ability, I am never writing something like with this conscious thought that guy didn't talk to me and I'm going to say this or I'm going to say that. I, I don't have that consciously. I, I mean, unconsciously, you know, a psychologist could come up with whatever, but consciously I'm not doing that. Yeah, it, it's, it's a historical record uh, and, and it's, it's based on facts and it's based on numbers and it's based on, it's based on you trying to be as accurate as possible. I think that is the, the perfect place to stop. And cool. I'm sure we'll be back and forth by email like we always do. Yep. And let's plan on doing a Kobe Bryant uh, round three in a couple of weeks. No, I would love it. Sounds great. David, thank you so much as always. No, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the platform you know, to express these views. I appreciate it. So that was my conversation with David Friedman. Look forward to round three where we debate the merits of Kobe Bryant. In the meantime, you can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.